like a magic pudding. That's Italian. You're a classic spice invader. Um. Below the Line, the Federal Election 2022. Brought to you by La Trobe University with The Conversation. From polls to party spin to policies, Below the Line is a 2022 limited edition podcast breaking free of party, media and populist lines. It's brought to you by La Trobe University with The Conversation Australia. I'm John Fain. I used to be at the ABC, but these days I'm a Vice-Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Melbourne. I'm joined by political scientists Anika Gaia, Simon Jackman, both from the University of Sydney, and La Trobe University's Andrea Carson. And we cut through the election noise. We'll be joined by journalists, activists, politicians, whoever we think might be useful over the course of this election campaign, and we'll try to bring you a new episode twice a week to unpack the election issues that matter to you. Now, Albo learned this weekend that you've got to suffer if you want to sing the blues. There he was at Blues Fest, and depending on which brand of media you consume, he was either booed or treated like a rock star. Annika, you have some on-the-ground experience of Blues Fest. Is it a political environment? Oh, well, I was there, it was in 2017, and I really remember um, Billy Bragg well, his performance. And when he came on stage, uh, there was no booing whatsoever. It was thunderous, thunderous applause. And we all know that Billy Bragg is an unashamed socialist and his political views are very, very clear. So I would say the, uh, the Labor Party strategists, I think that they thought they were onto a pretty sure thing when they included Blues Fest on Albo's um, tour of the Lismore and the flood-affected regions. So it very much is a political space, but it depends on who's doing the talking. So we all like to, to talk politics. We all like politics when we have it in the medium of, of, of songs and, and, and protests. But as soon as you get a party politician that enters that arena, I think things aren't quite as sure as the Labor strategists thought they would be. It's a bit like, isn't not, Simon, it's a bit like when politicians turn up at the football finals or the cricket and it's tradition to boo them as a way of saying, this is not your place, go away. Or, or, or turning up at the warning memorial uh, at the G uh, a couple of weeks ago yep. in some of the furious back and forth on social media about what really happened at Blues Fest yesterday. There were a lot of comments pointing out um, the reception Morrison got at the G. I think Annika uh, nailed it, though. I'm from Brisbane originally, and the Woodford Festival, Kilcoy, just north of Brisbane, as soon as a partisan figure grabs the mic, particularly in the context of election, unless it's perhaps Kevin, o, uh, Kevin Rudd in 07, local hero, anything other than that, it does kick the event in a different direction. And I think the punters resent that more than anything. But what's weird here is that depending on which media outlets you follow, You've got a completely different picture of it. Casso, what's that about? Yeah, the way it's reflected back at voters is interesting and shows the divergence that we're seeing right throughout this campaign so far between the nine mastheads, which is Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, and perhaps even I put The Guardian out there on the left of centre publications, compared to the News Corp publications such as the tabloids in Brisbane, um, Sydney and Melbourne. And what we're seeing is very negative coverage coming from those East Coast News Corp tabloids, and that was reflected with the Blues coverage as well, where they made a a big deal about Elbow being booed. And yet on the other papers, those that might be um, labelled left of centre, 
we see that uh, he was a hero at the Blues Festival and was cheered. So voters are getting quite a different story here. It's very similar to how we're getting on those East Coast publications at Elbows the Amateur and on the other side we're getting front-page coverage about Morrison's broken promises with the Integrity Commission. Very different pictures of this election campaign. The media has always been a pack. In fact, there's no greater pack than the Canberra Press Gallery. It's led by a significant core of strong and senior journalists and pretty much the rest of the media, in my view, has always kind of followed lemming-like and some of the people who are on their first or even maybe their second election campaign take their cue from the leaders. So is that what we're seeing here? Are we seeing, certainly as the Age City Morning Herald have sort of shifted a bit to centre-right, under the administration of nine as opposed to Fairfax. Are we seeing a slight shift in emphasis? And the ABC used to be a kind of counterpoint to the on, on the centre-left of the tendencies by News Corp to go to the centre-right. Are we seeing a shift here, do you think? Is there a, a way we can measure it? Or is this another podcast, another topic all of its own? Carso? Well, I think um, we, and Annika knows this too, being the editor of the election book that comes out uh, every election time, we see that the media very much follows the politicians' agenda, that they're very reactionary. They're not so good, as you said, John, they work as a pack and they're not so good at um, picking other issues and putting them in front of the politicians. We can see that trail from press releases that used to be in the old days straight onto the mainstream pages. Now what we see is politicians putting their message out on social media or doing these very staged events and then the mainstream media just picking up on it, but taking perhaps different perspectives of it. All right, well, let's move on and we'll see what um, what the scandal du jour is by the time we all gather again, <laughs> perhaps, perhaps before Anzac Day. This week, the focus will be on the leaders' debate. It's the first. It used to be that there were multiple debates. Now it seems they're so carefully curated. We're going to be grateful, apparently, that there's even a couple. First of all, let's go through who watches, why does it matter, and what significance does it have? Now, Professor of Polls, Simon Jackman, let's start with you on this one, if we could, and we'll go to Professor of Parties and Professor of Press after that. Very few people um, watch these and will watch this one since it's on Sky. The, the literature's pretty clear on this. It's, it's a very hardcore group that tend to tune in to these sorts of events. And most people's experience of the debate is mediated through other media reports, and then in turn through their friends and family, their sort of informal channels of, of political communication. They, they seldom move the needle uh, much or for long, other than when they do. And that is when someone really steps in poo, or, or someone has a real cut-through moment, a, a big breakthrough, gotcha line, a, a real moment that sticks in voters' heads. But um, the, the temptation often um, when the polls are lopsided is for very steady as she goes and it's a real, and the, and the underdog has to do something to break through. That's why this debate will be a little interesting. The polls are, and the betting markets, everybody's got this election suddenly line ball. So it'll be very interesting to see um, the strategies um, of the leaders, particularly Albo, I think, uh, in, in light of that sort of electoral context and where the narrative, God help us, has gone uh, in this first week or so of the campaign. All right, Annika, as Professor of Parties, we've got the polls, as Simon mentioned, uh, are changing a bit. But the one thing that doesn't change 
is the significant number, between a quarter and a third of voters polled, are still undecided. Now, as I've quipped before, you can't really be undecided about Scott Morrison. It's a bit like Jeff Kennett when it, there were high undecideds in 99 in Victoria. You can only be undecided about whether or not there's a, a viable alternative. He's a very polarising figure. So what do you make of it and what significance then do the debates have? Well, I mean, for parties, the debates are risky um, because parties in their campaign strategies would always prefer direct and unmediated communication with the electorate. And I mean, d debates give you an, an, an essence of, of some of that, but obviously questions get in the way um, and, and leaders' remarks get in the way. And the other reason why they're risky is because they really do focus the attention on one particular individual. And for, for the Liberals, I mean, you know, in, uh, in 2019, Scott Morrison was a pretty vicious campaigner and he almost single-handedly led the Liberal Party campaign. And that's what's happening again this year. That's a higher risk strategy for Labor, as we've already seen in the first week of the campaign. So these debates, you know, they are an opportunity for parties to start to present their, their policy pieces to the electorate. But this focus on leaders that debates brings with it is, um, is pretty risky. Things look like they're just going to play out in a very similar way, I think, to 2019. So we can expect the ALP, I think, to go hard on um, social policy issues, health, NDIS, and to, to really, I think, try to maybe reclaim a little bit of territory on economic responsibility. But the government will be jobs, 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 national security, very much strong economy, building future, as it was in, in 2019. So that aspect of it doesn't change, and it's part of the reason, I think, why voters don't listen to debates anymore, because what are we getting out of them that's, you know, markedly different to what we hear in other contexts? Unless there's a king hit. Is that right, Carso? Yeah, well, Annika's right. In 1993, 71% of Australians were watching the debates in 2016, that was down to 21%, so it's probably even less now. However, they do have this long tail effect where quotes get picked up and regurgitated on social media. And let's remember, this debate's in Brisbane, and it's being run by News Corp, Korea Mail, which has been doing very unflattering headlines for uh, Albanese, and with Sky News, moderated by Kieran Gilbert. It's on at 7 o'clock. That's up against Lego Masters, so it may, which attracts an audience of over a million people, not to mention all the nine, uh, all the news outlets. So it may not get a viewership directly, but Brisbane's been hit by floods. There's meant to be a hundred undecided voters giving questions. So climate change has got to sneak in there at some point, one might think. And integrity. What about in integrity? The Labor Party's been hammering away at the Liberals on integrity. There's that headline on the papers on the weekend, you know, it just doesn't matter to a whole, according to a whole bunch of backbenchers, it's irrelevant. So who decides who asks the questions, which questions get to air and which ones get put in the too hard basket? Well, that's right, John. And the other thing I would also raise is that um, Sky News is now broadcast on free-to-air networks through the Wynn Regional Network. And that goes out mainly to regional Queensland, New South Wales, South Australia and Victoria. And it tends to be older people that watch television to begin with. I know none of my students do. I think Annika's right with the topics that Morrison's going to try and hang on, knowing that he's getting older audience that will be listening to it and probably a regional audience. Is it like Q&A where all the questions are kind of curated and rehearsed virtually? Simon, you've been on Q&A. <laughs> As a guest... 
you'd I had no visibility on that, and certainly not as prime minister or leader of the opposition as a guest, just as a, um, a professor. They're not going to um, give you a heads up on the questions. We certainly did, although as the show is being recorded, it was very clear, and it, that's clear when you watch Q and A too. But as for these debates, look, um, the questions uh, are key to. I think Sky or Kieran's own sense of what the agenda ought to be, and and look, Kieran's a pretty straight shooter. Um, I think it's not like having Paul Murray um, moderate this for a start, but I'd be very curious as to see what questions make it, because that in turn is a political choice uh, in 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 the context. Andrea, great point about Sky going free to air uh, regionally. You tend to forget that when you live in Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne. But Sky is the news outlet on free-to-air in, or one of them, in big chunks of rural and regional Australia. It's a point that I think can't be made often enough. Quite surprised Albanese and his team agreed to this, having it moderated by Courier Mail and by Sky, just given how negative and aggressive the coverage has been against the ALP so far. Well, they can't really refuse to, can they? If they refuse to, then they're accused of dodging and weaving. And uh, I mean, I think the negotiations behind the scenes by the different campaign headquarters are about matching a Sky News one, which has happened now. You know, it used to be at the Rudy Hill RSL or whatever it was called. I can't remember now. Usually matched by one on the ABC. Is there any, is there any news yet? There's precedent for that, John. You might remember Malcolm Turnbull refused and Bill Shorten ended up debating himself. They still went ahead with it. That was in 2016. Bob Hawke, when he had great status with the public, he refused to be it in the debate because he didn't want to elevate his rival at the time. So there is precedent for saying no. Is there news? Does anyone know? I don't know. I've tried to find out. Is there going to be an ABC-hosted debate as well or have the parties agreed? Well, that's the other thing. Unlike America, where these things are all organised well beforehand, there's a debate committee, uh, it's done very methodically. Australia, it's always a grab bag and last minute negotiations and sometimes they get up and then they fall over. You might remember that the ABC one fell over, um, I think in 2016 because there was an agreement or it might have been 2013 with Gillard. I expect there will be another debate, but we haven't heard about it yet. Well, so it, it matters, as Simon said, it matters if it matters. In other words, if there's a king hit or a knockout blow or, on the other hand, a, a, a shocking mistake, and then that gets magnified on social media. We're seeing also a very different reaction, as Professor Press Carso said, uh, you've got your country audience and your Sky News live to air audience, but then you've got the secondary audience where the memes, the jokes, the mocking, the, you know, the project, um, different satire shows. I think Sean McAuliffe is finishing up, but Charlie Pickering is starting up again. So you get that that repeat and the replays over and over again. We've seen, I think it was five days of Albo not remembering the unemployment rate and the interest rate stuff. I mean, these things can take on a life of their own. What significance, Annika, does that then have on the, the morale, the esprit de corps, fundraising, donations, the knock-on effect, if I can call it that? Certainly a big effect, and this is going to be, I said, I said this last episode and I'll keep saying it, it's a very long campaign. <laughs> it's going to be a difficult, a difficult campaign for, for getting morale. I mean, look, you know, parties now are spending 
more and more on advertising and they're professionalising this aspect of the campaign far more than they did in previous years where they relied on on members and sort of workers, advocates to, to spread the message. So in a way, the amount of money that they're spending is an insurance policy, but it's going to, it is, it's already leading to, um, you know, disaffection, distrust in the electorate. You know, Simon, what do you think of this? I wanted to ask John and Andrew about this, the way that the press gallery and the journalists covering campaigns and their editors, for that matter, have this incentive to thump the living daylights out of what are often small or trivial matters. A federal election is the greatest show on earth if you're a political journal. It's also an opportunity to really sort of promote your personal brand as a journo, as an analyst, here we are doing a podcast quite opportunistically around the context of the election. This um, celebration of small, trivial matters, perhaps with a nod to that competition inside the masthead, across mastheads, but also it, it, they're in this bubble as well where, of course, it matters and, uh, and, and can't help but then get told the, to the public that these things matter because this hothouse gallery uh, in the context of this campaign thinks it matters. Um, you know, John and Andrew, you, you know, what do you guys make of that? Media and politics and in particular the political economy of journalism is not what I do. Um, but I'd be really fascinated in your take on that. Yeah, I think all that's right, Simon. I'm just wondering who's watching this. You know, we know that younger people don't, Many of them don't even own televisions, let alone watch free-to-air television. Uh, newspapers' uh, hard copy audience has been dying for a long time. That's not true, of course, of the online iterations. So that's being picked up. But I wonder whether this is um, more a TikTok election. My kids have been sharing lots of memes and things on TikTok. A lot of these videos, Labor's very proactive on it. All the major parties are. They're getting 40,000, 50,000 likes on each of these 15-second little memes, and some of them are just so senseless. You know, um, Scott Morrison goes up and pats a dog and the dog runs off, this sort of stuff. But that's reaching a much younger audience, and they will be engaging with the campaign in a very different way to the way you talk about it, Simon, with the pack in the press gallery that are picking up on various things, but I'm not sure who's listening to that. Can I park your question and and put it as a separate topic for an entire podcast episode because <laughs> it requires, job. in sure. fact, it, I think it demands closer scrutiny and I think it's a really important and interesting one. There's enormous blowback against traditional media. Let's use that, though, as an entree. Oh, that's terrible to our dessert. Uh, we've done the entree, which was Blues Fest. We've done the main course, which is the debate. And I'm very disappointed none of you brought up the worm. I think the goggle box approach to the debate is, in fact, the most interesting part sometimes. But let's get to a really important issue that we have to consume before we finish. If you were asking a question of Scott Morrison, will someone ask him whether or not the Liberal Party is transphobic because of his endorsement of the Warringah candidate, Catherine Deves, and her ongoing campaign to make this a national issue. Annika, let's start first of all, is it gaining traction or is it a distraction or is it appealing to some micro section of a sensitive electorate somewhere that's crucial? What on earth is this incredibly marginal issue doing at the forefront of people's minds? 
I think first and foremost, it's it's being used to discredit a candidate. And I think that we will see instances of this sort of thing happening again and again in the campaign. So typically political parties will go through their opposition's list of candidates to look through their social media accounts, through any public statements that they've previously made uh, to see if there's anything there that's going to get any traction that, that could be used to discredit them. So I think it's at the, the foremost level, that's the sort of the political play that it is. It's extremely unfortunate that such an important and significant issue is being potentially used in this way. But what's led to it being so supercharged? Well, I, I, look, I think that it, it's become supercharged because of the nature of the electorate as well and because Zali Stegel is um, who Catherine is up, up against. Um, if it had happened in another electorate with, that was less high profile, I don't think it would have had the same amount of traction. I think that's the sort of primary primary reason. I mean, I'd be interested to hear Simon and Andrew's view on it as an election issue. Annika, I have a different take on it. I don't think it's about Moringa at all. Um, Moringa has lost and they were struggling to find a candidate and now they've got one. And it so happens that Morrison's captain's pick here has this um, history of making these statements about uh, professional or semi-professional uh, trans trans athletes. It's not designed for consumption in Moringa. It's designed to do a couple of things. One is to find a wedge issue, to try and open up labor on this one, not in Moringa, uh, not in Wentworth, but out west, to make a, a seat like Longman uh, on the northern outskirts of Brisbane, heading up towards the Sunshine Coast, to make it tricky for labor up there. Labor doesn't want to talk about this if they're smart, just play a completely dead bat and let Trent Zimmerman in North Sydney and let Maurice Payne on insiders handle the liberal moderates handle the tough questions on this one. But he's wedged himself, Simon. What he's done is, and we've seen it now bleeding in, Trent yeah, Zimmerman yeah. is suddenly saying this is unacceptable, the New South Wales that, Treasurer. That's right. Also saying, so that he, that, he split right. his own party by making this an issue. How does that make sense? Yeah, it might, might be a little too tricky by half, uh, a little bit like the, the vote. On, um, on the Religious Discrimination Act, but it's typical politics that you will see in, in, you know, theorem, campaigns are weird, but the idea that these issues get these, these other issues around the side, it seems, that I think actually if, if, if Labor blew this issue up, it, it, that's not good politics for them. I think the coalition is in possession of some pretty convincing research to suggest that this issue does actually have some traction in some of the marginal electorates, not in the inner cities, but in the outer suburban and, and regional Australia. But Simon, it's a really dangerous game for the Libs to be playing, as we saw with the same-sex marriage debate, which didn't fall along partisan lines. There were some very coalition strongholds that voted very favourably in support of same-sex marriage, and those that voted against it tended to be over 65 have a degree of religiosity, whether it were more likely Protestants and Catholics, and also um, new immigrants to Australia that voted against it, not necessarily left-right um, Labor versus coalition supporters. But, Casso, doesn't it also not affect the brand, the Liberal brand and the PM's brand, because it portrays him as belligerent? He's not prepared to hear what people are saying about this issue. People are being hurt, people are at risk don't care, we're sticking to our guns. Doesn't that have an impact as well? I don't know if it's a vote changer, John. 
in the most important issues. I think people are still focusing on the economy, maybe climate change, depending what age you are, and healthcare and education. Sure, integrity, but it but it helps characterise him. It, it reinforces his the perception the public have of him as being a kind of belligerent, hardcore, um, my mind is not for shifting. Isn't that part of what it's about? But John, there's another take on that and that it also appeals to a, a large segment of Australian. And, you know, my research reveals, you know, the United States does not have a monopoly on moral traditionalists, moral conservatives, you know, um, capital, you know, small a authoritarians. It ties to a narrative that the, the country goes to hell in a handbasket if you elect Albo, right? That this is just the unraveling, the you won't recognize Australia anymore. Now, they're never going to say it like that, or I don't think they will. Well, they've got the weather vane ad, Simon, which shows the flip-flops, which is the contrast to what John's saying with a belligerent Morrison. Well, let's see. And just finally, and back to you again, Carso, as Professor of Press, is News Corp leading or following? Because most of the the press, most of the coverage of this has come from inside that tent. Are they picking up on the community or are they trying to deliver this to the community? Oh, absolutely delivering to the community, I think. And it'll be interesting to see whether their readers turn off from it or whether, uh, which has happened in the past, where there's been actual gains for the ALP um, in tele- the Daily Telegraph and Career Mail strongholds. So let's just see. But it, it's been coverage that has come with a, that looks like it's coming with a very strong pro Morrison agenda. Well, which would be consistent. Look, as always, time defeats us and we've just. We've tried to go down deep on these issues, but every time we do, we just we just keep finding more and more to talk about. So let's gather again as soon as we can. And if we can get another gathering, if we can find time in your busy schedules before Anzac Day, that would be fantastic. You've been listening to Below the Line, presented by Melbourne University's Vice-Chancellor's Fellow, John Fain. Oh, that's me. With Professors Annika Gaia and Simon Jackman at the University of Sydney and Dr. Andrea Carson from La Trobe University. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you may also enjoy Michelle Grattan's interviews with political players and experts, also presented by The Conversation Australia. To listen or subscribe, search Politics with Michelle Grattan on The Conversation Australia website or your favourite podcast app. Our producers, we thank them always, Courtney Carthy and Benjamin Clark. Speak to you again soon. Below the Line, the Federal Election 2022. Brought to you by La Trobe University with The Conversation. To get more information or to get in contact, please see the episode notes. Mr Howard called me to offer his congratulations. The people have spoken, but it's going to take a little while to determine exactly what they've said. You obviously enjoyed hearing it, so let me say it again. The Government of Australia has changed. We have every confidence that we will form a coalition majority government. I have always believed in miracles.